Welcome to DLA Piper's Better Contract podcast series. I'm Mark Dewar, a partner in the commercial contracts team based in London at the global business law firm DLA Piper. In today's episode, I'm delighted to be joined by my colleagues, Lauren Herkham, who's a partner in our Hong Kong office and heads up our technology sourcing and commercial practice, and Halid Dadi, a partner and the head of our commercial practice in Amsterdam. Today, we're going to be exploring the common pitfalls to avoid and how to go around them in international contracting. And this is against the backdrop of global recession, inflation, as we know, the cost of living crisis, supply chain disruption caused by COVID, and of course, the sanctions on Russia and Iran, and the geopolitical tensions between China and the US that emanate out of the Trump era, plus also climate change and changes in laws and regulations, particularly in the scope and context of COP27 of ESG, data and consumer protection, you need, and I think it's really important, to have an enforceable, bespoke and agile contract that sets out parties' obligations very, very clearly in terms of supply of goods and services. Lauren, do you want to give us initially a perspective from the APAC China jurisdiction? Yeah, thanks, Mark. I think ultimately in the last few years, what we've seen in this part of the world and international businesses in general is a real push to streamline their contracting models and really leverage a global approach. And while this obviously benefits the business by ensuring that group members in different jurisdictions adopt the same risk profile and have similar contracting models, it can cause issues depending on how the business is ultimately structured, where the legal teams sit, the countries that the services or goods are being provided or where those are being procured from. And also, probably perhaps more importantly, the markets which these businesses operate in and the sectors that they're involved in. Khaled, what are your observations from a sort of Dutch and EU perspective on this? Well, we often do get the question from clients that are entering into the EU market. So can you please make this contract enforceable under EU law? And I think that's a common misconception because they're is really no such thing as a European law or a common civil law that applies across uh, the continent. I mean, some jurisdictions are very permissive. Some are perhaps more restrictive. And what we often see is that like Anglo-American style contracts, they're not always appropriate for a continental EU audience. Think about definitions such as direct, indirect damage and so on and so forth. And that can give actually rise to quite some uncertainty. You can easily see in that regard that A one-size-fits-all approach can be quite the challenge within the EU. Yeah, and I I think that's a really good point, actually, Howard, because one thing that's been, and it's always been there, brought into sharp focus, you know, with Brexit and the UK leaving the European Union, I think what's really, really come across is that, you know, we are now outside the bloc doing business with the bloc. But actually, within that block, there are local differences amongst the 27 member states, quite apart from the differences that you then get between the civil and the common law jurisdictions, when in certain instances you have statutory defined terms in one like force majeure in France, but not in, in, in English law. But also, when you're dealing transatlantically, you get differences within the common law system in terms of damages, multiple damages, and punitive damages. I think, I think that's a really good point, Helen. Lauren, you mentioned that companies may be entering into contracts for multiple jurisdictions. What do you see as some of the biggest risks involved in this? 
So touching, I guess, on what Halid said, there is a, a tendency to try and use a global template or a template that's already been developed in the EU and the UK and try and make that work for an APAC market. And while that's not necessarily a problem, what I commonly find is that a lot of MNCs are not really looking at the differences that could occur within the region. So Asia is obviously multiple different jurisdictions with competing different legal systems. We have a mix of common and civil law systems and the types of things which are regulated in one jurisdiction is not necessarily the same in another. And what we tend to find is that businesses lump Asia together as a whole and that can bring with it problems when you try and roll those out to local markets where the contract is not defined in a way or uses terms which are are commonly accepted within those markets. But I think what the interesting part that continually comes up and is often overlooked is choosing the right governing law and dispute resolution mechanism within the contract itself. There is a tendency to default to familiar jurisdictions, English law, Singapore law, largely the common law systems, which we have same in Hong Kong and Australia. But what's often overlooked is how that interplays with the rest of the contract itself and whether or not the contract is actually enforceable. So while we would typically look at things such as the location of the parties, the subject matter at hand, thinking about whether or not there is a reciprocal enforcement arrangement between the jurisdictions in which you are actually procuring or operating the services or procuring the products. And that's something where, as I mentioned earlier, is often overlooked. So a good example of this is the nexus between Hong Kong and China, You mentioned earlier, you know, in light of geopolitical tensions between the US and China, the reality is, is that there is still a huge amount of business and opportunity within the region. And as a result of that, picking a contract which is governed by, say, English law with English courts, as an example, isn't going to be beneficial for you if you're dealing with a contract which has a China nexus. Instead, picking something like Hong Kong law with Hong Kong arbitration is going to be more beneficial. Why? Well, because Hong Kong have a reciprocal arrangement with China for the recognition and enforcement of foreign judgments. So as a result of that, you can benefit from a common law system, Hong Kong law being very much based on English law, but then also leverage the advantage of being actually able to enforce your contract, especially when you're dealing with a Chinese counterparty or where your contract has a China nexus. That's really, really interesting. And that's actually, that's precisely what's happened to a certain extent with the UK and stepping now outside Europe. You know, choice of law is is critical. We've lost the ability that we used to have when we were within the European Union of the Brussels-Lugano conventions to enforce reciprocally into the EU. So exactly those issues you've been talking about for China and Hong Kong and those those issues there are, are very, very relevant now for the UK, where you've got to look critically at enforcement issues as well. Now, how did... From a European perspective, how is it approached in countries like the Netherlands? Yeah, I don't think the approach will be that much different in the EU. We will also look at, of course, enforceability issues. Where are uh, assets located? Can you actually seek recourse if, if something goes wrong within the contract? Because ultimately, without recourse, the contract can become sort of a, a toothless tiger, if you will. But 
from my perspective, I mean, much will also depend on the type of contract. It's a qualification question, if you will. Just to give you an example, commercial agency arrangements within the EU are based on the EU regulation. So typically, there will not be that big of a difference between the laws of one country over the other. And why is that important? I mean, the, the key thing that you need to know about commercial agency is that upon termination, there is mandatory law which stipulates that the agent is entitled to a goodwill indemnity, a compensation for new business being brought to his principal. And the agent is, of course, an intermediary. So if you compare that, for instance, to distribution agreements, distribution agreements are not harmonized within the EU. So the law depends per country, setting up, of course, aside competition law. But there are some similarities between the two types of agreements. And some countries, for instance, treat distribution in terms of compensation of goodwill at the end of the agreement, uh, similarly to agency agreements. And some countries do not. So you can easily imagine that the difference and the surprise that you may be confronted with choosing one law over the other. I think that's really interesting, Halle. And I think it's consistent with having to look at it on a jurisdiction by jurisdiction and reasonable block basis. So are there any other clauses or issues which you think have more focus now? Well, when we look at the last couple of years, as a result of COVID, the war in the Ukraine, supply chain shortages, hyperinflation, exploding energy prices, the contractual balance in a contract constantly under attack. And just look at today's reality. Companies are unable to continue their operations or maybe only able to do so at a loss-making exercise. And from my perspective, this has brought a renewed focus on force majeure provisions, which historically used to be boilerplate provisions, which you know, parties did not pay that much attention to. And what we're seeing across Europe, again, linking back to what I said at the beginning, there is no such thing as a harmonized EU contract law. I mean, some countries have statutory force majeure provisions. Some countries do not. The Netherlands, for instance, is an example of a country with force majeure provisions. And the common trend that we are seeing, I think, across the EU is that the threshold for invoking force majeure is still really, really high because it is linked to impossibility. And that's often not the case, of course. You know, I was going to say, I think that's absolutely right. I think what we're seeing on big sourcing contracts in the UK is actually you've got two parties locked into a contract that they really want to perform and they really want to stay, have that strong relationship, but they simply cannot perform it because of you know inflationary pressures, sourcing pressures, commodity pressures, raw component pressures. So they actually don't want to bring it to end. They don't want to suspend it either because they need the revenue under the contract. And what they really need to do is to revisit the core terms of the contract and in a sense renegotiate. So what we're actually seeing, I think, and, and a trend towards, which is sort of going back to how it used to be 30 years ago, the 1990s, is a focus at dispute resolution, but not dispute resolution in the context of a dispute in a court. It's more you know, change control approach and actually trying to find a way through those tensions. Is this what you're seeing in China, Laura? Yeah, well, I was actually going to say, I think what we're really talking about here is having a good governance structure. Ultimately, especially in large sourcing transactions and where you are trying to deal with multiple suppliers in a very complex supply chain situation, we're seeing more renewed focus on governance structures and ensuring that you have the correct provisions in the contract. I would say probably over the last couple of years in a pre COVID world, 
the governance mechanisms in a contract were kind of more or less overlooked or, yeah, we're all getting on fine. We all know what we're doing. We'll meet a couple of times a quarter and that would be it. But what we have seen as a result of COVID and the fallout from supply chain issues and now the current economic crisis in the world, that there is a need for parties to have this conversation up front to talk about proper management and to deal with things such as risk allocation, especially where there's multiple contracting parties involved and looking at your supply chain and creating a mechanism whereby each of the contractors or subcontractors within that supply chain are coming to the table and there's an equal share of risk allocation between the parties. So rather than having a light governance schedule and then putting the contract in a, in a drawer, we're seeing, or, or rather the recommendation effectively to businesses is to pay more attention to this now and actually agree how you're going to deal with problems and have a regular reporting and meeting process within your contracts such that when you are running into issues, everybody knows how they're going to be dealt with. Yeah, I mean, interestingly enough, in the Netherlands or in the EU, definitely the same holds true. Governance is key, but also baking in contract provisions, which allow you some flexibility, at least price increases or hardship allocation of stock provisions. And what we're also seeing, and I'm also curious to hear about uh, the trends in your jurisdiction, but in the Netherlands, for instance, the courts are more and more adopting a share the pain approach, meaning that the courts actually allocate the consequences of a particular event, which is outside of the party's control, and then basically balance out the cost between the parties, which is basically an extreme intervention in the contract. But these are indeed drastic times, so maybe there is some justification in there. But also curious to see what trends are happening in your jurisdictions. I mean, I think, Lauren, another thing I'm noticing, although it's, it was talked about by one of the, the chairman of the big US supply chain entities, I think it was Target, looking at you know the risk that was caused by COVID and having long distended supply chains, you know, being broken in half, say, sourcing from Asia or from Europe to Asia, and looking at a trend towards insourcing. Is this something, i.e. bringing production supply chain nearer to where the point of manufacturing use of the product is? Is this something you're detecting in the APAC China region? I think certainly the insourcing element is more of a trend within the UK, EU, and perhaps also the US, based on what you've just said. I think China itself has resulted in more on the ground production. But in terms of the APAC region as a whole, I think we're almost seeing the opposite in that the cost and impact of COVID has meant that outsourcings, which typically had not been done to the level and scale that the UK and the EU have, are now being embarked on as a cost-saving mechanism and a way to save resources especially in cheaper jurisdictions where the cost of labour and production are much cheaper. So jurisdictions such as the Philippines, Malaysia and mainland China are one of the key choices for other APAC jurisdictions who are looking to source and fill their supply chain. 
Yeah, and I, I think that was spot on the sort of report that Target contributed to is exactly that. Notwithstanding the difficulties imposed and tensions on the supply chain, there was no sort of economically efficient substitute for outsourcing and having distended supply chains. So I think that's really interesting, that China trend. We've talked a lot about the risks faced by international businesses. How have you seen these addressed successfully? I think from my perspective, the biggest way of dealing with these challenges is to adopt a holistic approach and really understand the key drivers of the business and our clients. As we've talked about throughout this discussion, there is no one size fits all approach, but thinking about the impact of the contract and the enforceability when selecting things like governing law and and dispute resolution is important, but not forgetting that the contract itself can actually set expectations about how the parties will work together. It doesn't need to be the result of when things are always problematic, but it can set the tone for how the parties will work together for the life of the contract. Khalid, does this have resonances with you in Europe, what you're seeing? Yeah, no, I fully agree with uh, Lauren's observations. And maybe if, if I can add my two cents, I mean, some clear do's and don'ts. I mean, do not just simply copy paste the contract when you enter into a new region. Really make sure that the contract that you are using actually also fits into the local legal uh, landscape. And if you don't want to undertake the exercise of a localization on a country by country basis, maybe work with regional hubs. I think the example of Hong Kong is, is a great one. Yeah. And also maybe a final thought. And what we often see in negotiations right near the end, where the parties cannot see eye to eye on the governing law, and then they end up choosing a neutral venue and law. Switzerland is, of course, a famous example. Be mindful that such a choice can also make you open Pandora's box. So there are some risks involved in that approach as well. Yeah, Hannah, I think that's really, really helpful. And um, drawing it to a close, I think the key messages are you've got to get local law input. I mean, it doesn't necessarily mean you have to slavishly go through individual elements or contract subjects to those local laws, if nothing else, to identify potential regional blocks that you might be able to leverage in the context of multi-jurisdictional cross-border contracts. And I think the other key things I'm hearing really are you know, maybe a neutral jurisdiction that actually works. But I think in Europe, a voguish one there is Switzerland, which I've used a lot recently. But the problem there is the potential cost. And is it giving you the same remedies or are you just creating a, a tertiary problem in addition to complexity? And then, of course, I think the constraints of mandatory law, we, we mustn't forget. And that's part of your analysis. But I think the biggest thing, I think, was the thing that Lauren mentioned, which is, you know, I think we've got to weave in a flexibility and in the context of a governance schedule. And maybe there's going to be a greater focus on these governance schedules that allows, you know, parties that really want to be wedded into a contract and stay party to that contract and keep that relationship alive, but actually can't for various reasons, maybe price, whatever. You give them a mechanism to have a dialogue that allows them to evolve that contract. Lauren and Halland, thank you very much for sharing your insights today. Do, of course, look out for further episodes in this series and click to subscribe to be the first to know. Thank you very much. <laughs>